Karlsson, Karlsson, världens bästa Karlsson. Karlsson, Karlsson, hoj här kommer Karlsson. Karlsson, Karlsson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Karlsson. Karlsson, 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 Welcome everybody to another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the longest running fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by a guy who has the same birthday as Connor McDavid. Not joking. It's true. January 13th. That's me and that's Connor. Mine was a few years earlier, but whatever. We don't need to split hairs. I'm your host, Elon Dubrovsky, and I've got a really fun interview for you today because I talked to Low Tide, aka Alan Mitchell. Maybe that's the other way around. But yeah, we talked all about the Edmonton Oilers. It was a really fun chat. You are going to like it. I guarantee it. I'm recording this a night after I did a podcast with my regular co-host, Brian, all about all the latest news and notes from the NHL over the past couple of weeks, all the trades, all the news about the players being exposed for the Seattle Kraken. So please uh, check out that episode if you haven't yet. Uh, and before I get to my interview with Low Tide, let me just mention that we are presented by DauberHockey.com and very proudly so it's the number one website out there for all things fantasy hockey articles every day. You definitely are going to want to be checking out all of their analysis of the players being exposed exposed to the Kraken and eventually the players who will be selected by the Seattle Kraken. That's where you're going to get your first fantasy projections of what to expect for next season before we record our own podcast about it. So yeah, that's DauberHockey.com. But with that, I'm not going to blabber any further. Let's just cut over to my interview with Alan Mitchell, aka Lodide, about the Edmonton Oilers. Enjoy! All right, everybody, super excited for today's beat writer interview that I've got for you. We've got a gem because I am joined currently on the line by a longtime chronicler of the Edmonton Oilers for over a decade. He's a contributor to The Athletic for Edmonton. He's the host of Lowdown with Low Tide on TSN 1260 Radio in Edmonton. It's Alan Mitchell, a.k.a. Low Tide. Welcome back to the show, Alan. Well, it's a beautiful intro. I, I, I can't possibly live up to it, but thank you. Uh, I mean, you've already lived up to it when I talked to you a year ago about the Oilers, so I'm really excited for uh, part two of this series. And yeah, honestly, uh, unfortunately, I feel like things aren't as optimistic as they were. When I talked to you last year, it was, you know, before the bubble playoffs, and the Oilers were coming off this really strong season, and, you know, they were about to go into this uh, playoff matchup, or I guess qualifying matchup versus Chicago, which seemed like it would be, you know, not too difficult, and we know how that worked out. And then this year, it kind of went the same, right? They had a really strong regular season, just like in 2019-20 they went into their round one uh matchup as like the heavy favorite and once again they got eliminated in four games so instead of three to one to chicago it was four nothing to winnipeg so now at this point going into this offseason i know there's obviously still a lot in the air like even after this duncan keith trade and the rnh extension there's like a bunch of still uh ufas like barry larson mike smith are all ufa but i just want to start by asking like the basic question like how far do you think this team is like from being a legit contender like now right now like should we trust the regular season result and conclude that this team is maybe just a couple smart moves away from finally being able to go on a run or are these two playoff exits like early exits indicative that may be a major shakeup will be needed before they can take that next step well i think what's happened is ken holland came in and he he realized he didn't have a lot of wiggle room he was in the same spot that peter shirelli uh had, was in uh, about 2018 or so where where all the free agent money was spent uh the 
there were underperforming contracts uh, all over the place, and he was just going to simply have to ride out a couple of years. And he made the the Milan Lucic trade, which people have forgotten about, but it was a big deal because it was unbiotable. And then he, for two years, I think what he tried to do was was get the team into the playoffs, and then you know let's see what happens. But uh, obviously, it was not a team that had balance and and had very poor depth. But this this year is the year where Holland, I, I believe, set up all his ducks in order. And he came into the offseason with uh, significant money, probably, we'll say, $15 million, although if he buys out Neil, it will be more. Uh, he signed Nugent Hopkins, and I think to a very good deal. Uh, the Duncan Keith deal, in my opinion, was an overpay. Uh, I think that we'll have to wait and see how the summer rolls out. But he believes that Duncan Keith has a lot uh, left. Looking at the numbers, I think Duncan Keith can play. I'm not sure how far up the lineup, but we'll find out. And Ken Holland's job is to go out and find uh, replacements and, and improvements in areas, and he felt Duncan Keith was the guy. Really, I think the answer to your question overall, though, is, yeah, Holland has is really feels like this team needs to be better. He set it up so this would be the summer he'd get it. Now, with the Seattle expansion, I think what you know the owners may be finding is that their money isn't going to go as far as maybe they thought it would, and this is going to have to be a year where they'll improve in some areas via free agency, but they're going to have to use trades and then ask some of their younger players maybe to step into roles that they they weren't anticipating based on what we're seeing here early in the off season. Yeah, I see what you're saying. It seems like, oh, they was just, they looked so good this year. I though I wonder how much of it was just like looking great because Connor McDavid just completely exploded in the second half of the year. Like I wanted to ask you about what happened. He had this breathtaking hard and art Ross winning season. He demolished even like the high expectations we already had for him. He had 105 points in 56 games, which is a 154 point pace, 30 more than his previous career high 124 point pace from the year before. Uh, and like I'm looking at the splits here and McDavid was actually kind of doing his normal McDavid thing uh like 25 games in he ha- only had a paltry like 40 points in the first 25 games and out of nowhere he like went into overdrive was getting like more than two points a game for the final two and a half months of the season had 19 goals and 65 points in his final 31 games uh do you have any idea like what changed in early March for McDavid to like take off like that like was it just that he saw 100 points like in reach and figured he may as well just go and get there well I, I think they they McDavid is is a freak of nature number one. <laughs> uh, I think that they they moved Polyarvi up. I can't remember when, but it might have been a dozen games in. So that's probably like February, and they were still tweaking a little bit with the lines, uh, even a little after that. But Polyarvi really helped McDavid, I think. Uh, and I know obviously McDavid helped Polyarvi, but there's a thing that that Polyarvi does where he turns over pucks. And uh, there was a famous play, uh, Thomas Tatar and Pugliarvi met at the blue line, and uh, Pugliarvi knocked him off balance, and the puck came free, and McDavid grabbed it and went down and scored on Montreal. And, you know, he does, Pugliarvi does forecheck like a demon and turnover pucks, and McDavid, when he gets a puck and there's a, it's, it's like a broken play, he has a really good chance of scoring because he's just so quick and so fast. So I, I think... Moving Pugliarvi up, uh, up really helped. They also tweaked a little bit on the left side. I would say that McDavid, uh, every year, 
It's a matter of when he finds line mates he can work with. And obviously when he's playing with Dreisaitl, when those guys lock and load, as they did during the year, it's something else. Yeah, it's a really good point about Puliarvi, which is interesting because we actually talked about uh, McDavid in the context of line mates last year. I was listening back and you were saying how, like, really, it's hard to play with him and it's tough to find someone who can, like, kind of keep up with him or do what he needs them to do. And you actually specifically brought up that Puliarvi maybe wasn't always in the right spot when he was playing with McDavid back in, like, 2018-19 before he took that year off. Uh, but this year, like you said, he got onto that top line pretty early, stuck there all year long. It sounds like you're saying it was a success like should we just be expecting this Puliarvi mcdavid tandem to be a sure thing going forward and finally mcdavid has a winger that he could rely on to stick with him all season long i you know you hope so but but i also know that that it always seems like in a in a two or three year period there's a there's some movement around where things get stale uh with, with mcdavid if he knows where you are then you're going to get the puck and and the the thing about Paul Yarby is he's also a puck carrier. He's a transporter. But on the McDavid line, you're really better off just giving it to McDavid because no matter how good you are at transporting the puck, he's better unless he's getting double teamed. And and so I think Paul Yarby has had to simplify and even, you know, in the playoffs there was a couple of moments where I think he actually got moved off the line. That's going to happen. He's still a young player. But I, I, I believe that, that the – the Oilers know what they have, and they've seen what they have, and and Pugliarvi's seen what what the game looks like when he's playing with McDavid, and that's a really big impetus for a player. He's got a a contract coming up next year, and one imagines that that you know he wants to optimize the opportunity by scoring a lot of points. Yeah, which is interesting because on one hand, you could think of it like, wow, what a successful year. Like maybe going into the year, it didn't even look like Puliarvi was going to play in the top six. Like the first, you know, few games he wasn't. And then he made it to the, you know, McDavid line like we've discussed and he was there the whole time. So so in that way, it's like, wow, wow good for him. But on the other side, like even though he was in this great spot, he didn't actually put up such exciting like offensive numbers that, you know, fantasy managers were like drooling over. When he got promoted to the top line, I remember on our podcast, we were telling people that are playing fantasy, like go and, you know, stream Puliarvi onto your team because he's about to go nuts playing with McDavid. But, you know, he had 25 points in 55 games, which is only a 37-point pace if you play a full 82-game season. He had a nice run in April uh, right near the end of the year. Like, he had 10 points in his final 14 games. But still, like, that's pretty disappointing, especially when you consider that, like, Zach Cassian got, had a 47-point pace in 2019-20 when he got all that time with McDavid, got himself a really nice contract. So I'm wondering, even if Pugliarvi does hold that top-line spot, like, do you think he has the potential to get more points or do they like kind of however it worked out this past year where maybe he gets the puck to McDavid? Like you said, maybe he's able to, you know, cause these turnovers, but maybe does he not play in a way that we can expect him to be, you know, even up to the standard that Zach Cassian said in 2019-20? Well, I think there's a couple of things that, that held uh, Pugliarvi back. And and if they continue, then then his, his goal-scoring total uh, will will probably you know, not hit, you know, 25 or 30. Number one, he didn't play a lot in the power play. And and Alex Chason, who is now a free agent, uh, took a lot of that time. James Neal took uh, a lot of that net front time as well. If Pogliarvi gets the power play time, he's going to put up points. He's a giant in front of the net. He he scores a lot of goals within, you know, say five feet or so of the net. So th- that's going to come. If the opportunity is made available to him score on the power play, he will. The other thing is, and, and it sounds like nothing, but it, it 
it turned into a pretty lucrative business for Josh Archibald. Late in games, often Archibald will replace Pugliarvi, and often when the Oilers are in the lead, and often when the net's empty. And uh, I don't remember how many empty net goals Archibald got, but it was a few. And so, you know, if if Pugliarvi had been handled differently this year, he would have scored 20 goals. And I think he's very capable of doing that, but it does depend on how Coach Dave Tippett handles him. I see. So yeah, he's like in a good spot now, but maybe not as good a spot. Like you're saying, obviously, if you could get on that top power play, would you say right now, Pugliarvi is the front runner to take over from Alex Chason, who's unlikely to come back from free agency, I assume? I, I would think so. The, the, the orders are like, we're, we're coming up on free agency here uh, within the week. So uh, my sense is you're going to see at least one left winger added, maybe a left winger and a center, but right wing looks pretty solid and uh chason's not on the roster so they they protected four right wingers that assumes they have interest in keeping them so i would think yamamoto is a really nice player and he might get some power play time but Pugliarvi is i think closer to what that you know mcdavid drysidle nugent hopkins are wonderful passers yamamoto could add to that but Pugliarvi's role was you know when he did play on the power play was standing in front of the net and blocking out the sun and he's clearly he's a gigantic man. Uh, he's clearly well-suited to that role. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, so Pugliarvi maybe just be like better suited for that role, I guess, net front presence on the power play. I did want to ask you about Yamamoto. Actually, like one thing you said... Uh, during our interview last year that I thought was really interesting. I was asking you, like, similar to what I asked you this year, like, just generally about the looks of the team and how you think they're going to move forward. And you suggested kind of like that if Ethan Bear and Yamamoto are for real and then they get, like, a third-line center and maybe another scoring winger and get decent goaltending, then maybe they could be a contender. And I feel like, you know, they got the goaltending. Uh, I think Pugliarvi probably counts as, you know, being this, like, winger that they needed. Uh, but I wonder if, like, did they fail on that initial... Uh, requirement that you set out at least for Yamamoto like do you think he was as for real as we hoped he was because he had that amazing run at the end of 2019-20 at 26 points in 27 games but unfortunately those 26 points that he had that year remain his career high even though he played 52 games this year he only managed 21 points and you can't really blame it on deployment he spent most of the year you know attached to the hip to Leon Dreisaitl so I'm just curious, I guess similar kind of to my question about Pugliarvi, like where did Yamamoto's points go? I would have expected him to get a lot more points in the situation he was in, especially after that glimpse that he showed us the year before. Well, I'll tell you what my theory is, and I, I, I will also tell you before I start, I don't know. Uh, he 26 games into the year, I think he had 19 points, something along those lines. And there, I, I looked at it, there were there was no... Uh, uh, obvious injury around the point of the 26 or 7 game mark. But in his last 25 games or so, I think he had a goal and a couple of assists. Not much going on. And he, the weird thing is he played and he was still making really good decisions on the ice, passing the puck well, uh, playing well without the puck, forechecking. Uh, the, the NHL opposition was a little stronger on him. He was getting, you know, knocked off the puck more often. But I, I, my suspicion is that he had some kind of a, a, a nagging injury that they didn't want to report because they could keep him in the lineup. But I, I, I say that I'm really overstepping my bounds because I don't know, but I know the results weren't there. And often if you're watching a player and he's not doing what he has done 
you know, in the previous 25 games, uh, and he's still playing on a line, then there's every chance he's injured. And the reason they're not talking about it is because they don't want to let anybody know. I see. So yeah, so I guess then it's really going to be hard to ask you to speculate, because I guess we don't know the status of this potential injury that he may or may not have. But like, hearing that, it makes me think maybe with a full, you know, offseason to recover... I wonder if maybe next year he'll be able to surprise people and do a lot better if he's, you know, healed from whatever was ailing him. Well, I think, you know, Yamamoto is a fantastic player in the history of the Edmonton Oilers. And and I'll tell you why. They, they had drafted small players before. But in the fourth and the fifth round, and, and not much was expected of them. They they uh, drafted a kid named Ralph Intranuovo, uh, I don't know, 25 or 30 years ago. And he, he, he was lights out in the AHL, but they didn't, they didn't uh, bring him up to, to play him. He, he got a couple of cups of coffee, but he was never really a player they projected to, to have an NHL career. Yamamoto is it was like a paradigm shift. They said, you know, we're, we're sitting at number 22 overall. Nobody around this kid has his skills. We know he's, Five eight and 153 pounds, but to hell with it. We're drafting him, and, and for the Oilers to do the Edmonton Oilers to do this, uh, you know, the, drafting giants and and you know Coke machines and all the things <laughs> that they'd done uh, from 1980 till till 2017, it was a just an absolute stunner, and and in the time that he's played, say in the last two years, he's played almost a full season, 79 games. And he has 47 points, 19 goals, and and 28 assists. I think that's a good reflection of what a healthy Yamamoto will be able to do in the NHL. I don't know that he'll be you know healthy all the time because he is a smaller player, but but I think he covered their bet. He's going to be a 50 point guy in the National Hockey League on a skill line, and at 22 overall, there there wasn't anybody else that I saw that year that was going to be able to ever fulfill that role. He paid them back. I, I, I don't know that you know, there's been new management and new coaching since. So, so maybe not, maybe they won't draft another smaller player like that in the first round, but, but he's been a hell of a story, especially because it comes on the, the heels of what was several decades of just never going near that kind of a small player in the first round. Right. So yeah, I definitely had my expectations set too high after what we saw in 2019-20, but you're right. Overall, yeah, they got a solid top six, or that, like you say, if, even if he could just be a 50-point guy, then I guess maybe you need the upside for more to come if he ever gets a shot on the power play. So we'll have to wait to see if that happens. I guess one spot on the power play that he's no longer going to have access to is the spot that Ryan Nugent Hopkins takes, because like you said, he's been locked in now to an eight-year contract for, what is it, $5.125 million per year, which, yeah, seems like a really good deal. I guess they got it a little cheaper since they gave him the term. He's 28 years old, so I guess this will go up until he's age 36. Uh, but, yeah, good price for RNH. Though, I guess I need to ask you a question about him similar to Yamamoto because he was amazing at the end. I guess it was, like, with Yamamoto, actually, at the end of 2019-20. Like, Yamamoto, RNH, and Dreisaitl were tearing it up to end that season going into the, you know, COVID pause and then the bubble playoffs. And then this year, RNH's hot stick kind of cooled off. He managed only 35 points in 52 games for a 55-point pace, which was, like, miles behind McDavid and Dreisaitl, who had, like, 105 and 84 points, which was, like, interesting to me 
since he was generally on the ice with at least one of them, like the whole time, both at even strength or on the power play, I took a look at uh, RNH's IPP, which is the percentage of time that when a goal was scored while he was on the ice that he got a point and i see it was really low like 45 and a half percent the lowest of his career by far he was like at around 59 percent 2019-20 like over 65 percent in his previous three seasons so i'm just curious to get your take on like what happened there like rnh was obviously on the ice for a lot of goals scored as mcdavid and tricidal got all these points but he just wasn't getting in on them so is that just like a bad luck kind of thing or did he change the way he plays did the oilers have a different system i'm just curious why he had this like sharp drop in points well, it, it, it was a weird year. Like on the power play, he didn't he didn't skip a beat. Like, and and that's weird. Like it just is. This is a guy who's been in the National Hockey League for a decade, and and often when you start to erode, you 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 know your your offense goes away, and but it goes away everywhere, and and I I keep track of of two things. Uh, I'm a big five-on-five guy. It's the biggest game state, and it it tells you a lot about where uh, a player is. And in terms of goals per 60 in the last four years, um, Nuge was 0.77, 0.77, 0.98, and then 0.57 this this past year. So in a way, his goal scoring – it was was a matter of regression. He he'd had a about a between a ten and a twelve percent shooting percentage in the previous three years, and it was like seven percent this past year. So it, it it looks like an anomaly. It just does, right? And and you know you mentioned um, individual point percentage. He was in the seventies for basically the last four years before before this past season. So you're you're looking at a slight dip in shooting per 60 but i think he dropped about a half a shot per 60 at 5 on 5 but the the shooting percentage went down about 4% year over year and that is a big deal you're unlikely to see him do that again his shooting percentage was 712 761 695 I'm sorry, that's shots per 60. It was 1087, 1293, 824. So it's more likely going to come back to 10, right? Like he'll have a 10% shooting percentage. So if he, if he does what he normally does, if he has his, his, um, normal shot rate and he plays in 82 games, uh, you know, he's probably going to, he's probably going to shoot the puck seven times per 60. He's probably going to have a 10% shooting percentage. Uh, so he's going to end up getting maybe 140 shots, 14 goals, 15 goals at five on five, probably add, you know, five or six on the power play. And he's going to have a 21, 22 goal season and he'll be back to normal. I would bet on that, but it was a weird year. And uh, especially because it seemed like the other two bullets on that team, the the big gunners, were going off every night in Dreisaitl and and McDavid, and and I even had somebody, actually two people, approach me and say that they felt that Tyson Berry was getting a lot of the second assists. I don't know if that's true or not, and it doesn't matter. But Nuge was off the pace a lot at five on five. I wouldn't expect it to happen again at that level. 
Okay, that makes sense. And I guess maybe you could say that it was like maybe good news for the Oilers that he had a bit of bad luck this year, just because then they were able to lock him into this contract with only five uh, million and change. I assume the reception to the contract has been positive uh, among the Oilers fans. Oh yeah, news is wildly popular. The the verbal from from fans, whether you were on the radio or or reading blogs or whatever, uh, was you know they just couldn't you know believe. It was possible that Nuge wouldn't play for the Oilers. He really is, you know, in, in a lot of ways, going back to the Hall, Everly, Nugent Hopkins era, he was the most popular, probably because he was the, the final one in that group drafted. And he, he also, you know, presents as a very young guy. He still doesn't look like he's, you know, 25 or whatever. Uh, so I, I think he was very popular. He's also a center, which has extra value. So the, the, if he hadn't signed, I think fans would have been very upset. And then he signs a contract that really, uh, I'm not going to say it's a hometown discount because he got two years tacked on the end, but it was a friendly contract. It was a helpful contract to Ken Holland and the orders. So uh, people were pretty damn thrilled when Nuge got the deal. Well, that's great to hear. And yeah, I think he's going to be a pretty sneaky pick in fantasy leagues, just because like you said, he did something this year that he normally doesn't do. He, and you would expect that those points should come back. It's just, it's interesting that you brought up that maybe the secondary sissy often would get lent to Tyson Barry. And said, I definitely want to ask you about Barry in a sec, but I guess let's finish covering this top six here. We've covered the five likely pieces there. So McDavid, RNH, Dreisaitl, Yamamoto, and Puliarvi. So that still leaves an open spot. I see last year, uh, Dominic Cahoon spent a lot of the year playing with Drysaddle and Yamamoto, so I guess he was the most common sixth player in the top six. Uh, seemed like he had limited success. I see you just released an article today about why you think uh, Dominic Cahoon is the best Oilers expansion option for the Kraken. Uh, so if that happens, then I guess that would obviously open up a spot for someone else to either play with Drysaddle or McDavid or Nugent Hopkins or or a pair of them. Uh, do you have a sense of what management is looking to do? I guess you brought up earlier that they're looking to bring in a left wing. Is that to take over the spot that Cahoon was occupying this season? I think well, I think exactly that. But there's there's more in play. The owners have quite a bit of money, uh, and I, my suspicion is that that. They've got a, Ken Holland always makes a list, and I think that list would be uh, Zach Hyman, uh, Taylor Hall if he gets to free agency, Brandon Saad, um, Thomas Tatar, uh, maybe Blake Coleman. The, the the players who could come in and be a plug and play, say with on the McDavid line, and that would that would replace Dominic Cahoon and maybe Nugent Hopkins goes to the Leon Drysaddle line, something along those lines. But I also think there's a there's a chance that they they add another left winger via free agency, depending upon if if that you know player would be affordable. Uh, in what was a year ago supposed to be the Cahoon role, he was supposed to be the third line left wing, and and they were supposed to have a designated third line that worked. It didn't happen. The other player that that you should be aware of and thinking about this year, because I think he'll he'll play some in the NHL later on in the year, and by this time next year, he might be a regular, is Dylan Holloway from the 2020 draft. He had a, an enormous year in Wisconsin, and I think he, if he hadn't hurt himself, I think there was a chance he was going to play in the NHL this year at the end of the year. Didn't happen. And then he was going to go to Bakersfield. That didn't happen. But he signed, and my suspicion is that if he if he shoots lights out in Bakersfield, he won't be there a full year. 
Okay, yeah, I was going to ask you about Holloway. He had this, like you said, a great season, 35 points in 23 games in the University of Wisconsin. So yeah, that would be a fun person late in the season. Maybe he could pull a Yamamoto and come up late and then really like surprise people and have a great end to the season. I have to ask you, you brought up Taylor Hall as a UFA. Do you think there's a chance Hall would come back to the Oilers after he was traded all those years ago? Well, I think Hall's looking for... Hall is at a point in his career where if you look at his... his uh, statistics over his career he just he's done everything he's won an mvp uh, he's been the best player on his team uh pretty much every year um and but he hasn't won he hasn't been in the playoffs very much yeah. and and he, you know the bruins i'm a bruins fan so i watched them closely he was brilliant for the bruins down the stretch and at times in the playoffs but they looked like an older tired team uh in the postseason and and you know, we could we could find Taylor Hall signed right after the expansion draft by Boston. That could happen, but it's also possible that 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 you know he doesn't sign. And if he doesn't, then he's going to be looking around for a place to go where he can sign a, a you know a, a contract of some length and and have a really good chance at, at going deep in the playoffs and maybe eventually winning the Stanley cup. You know, Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl still have what four years left here. Well, four years from now, Taylor Hall probably won't be able to call his shot, but he can this summer. And, and I, I would put it as a possible that he comes here. Yes. I would love that. That would be so exciting. It's too bad uh, Adam Larson looks like, from what I've been seeing today on Twitter anyways, that he's not going to be there. So I guess they're not ever destined to play on the same team. But uh, yeah, that'd be so cool to see Taylor Hall come back, take two with the Oilers. Uh, Okay, so I guess let's go to defense now. And probably something I've been really excited to talk to you about this whole time, though you already kind of gave your answer in the intro there. But I wanted to ask you about this Duncan Keith trade. Uh, So over on D, it was actually, I'll admit, a bit depressing listening to uh, this part of the interview last year that I did with you talking about D because we spent a lot of time discussing Oscar Clefbaum's career year in 2019-20. You were saying how he's likely locked in to run the top power play for the foreseeable future, but you added the caveat as long as he's healthy. And of course, shortly after that, our discussion, it was announced that a shoulder surgery would keep Clefbaum out through the entirety of the 2020-21 season. And the latest report is now that he likely won't even play next season as well. So, you know, what could have been with Oscar Clefbaum? Anyways, the Oilers attempted to make up for the Clefbaum loss by signing Tyson Berry to that one year 3.75 million dollar contract last year and hard to argue with the results there at least offensively barry uh, led defenseman in scoring uh, 48 points in his 56 games uh so now barry is a ufa uh, adam larson is a ufa and they've just traded for duncan keith so they traded caleb jones in a third round pick to get keith and his 5.5 million dollar cap for the next couple seasons so i guess like there's a lot to dig into here but i'd love to get your thoughts just on what role do you think duncan keith has been brought in to fill here like are they thinking like he's gonna take over from tyson barry who is gonna leave or i've been seeing that maybe they're gonna try to bring back barry like what do you think they're hoping to get from duncan keith well, I think they there's a lot of things, and and Holland mentioned them in the media. They have a lot of things that are you know a character and and those sorts of things. But as as a hockey player, I think they want to settle down the defense. Uh, at the beginning of the year, Dave Tippett had pretty much set out what he wanted to do with his team. Uh, you know, they they had um, uh, Tyson Berry was on the third pair. Ethan Bear was with Nurse. Caleb Jones was with Larson. Uh, in the first three games, Larson and Jones fell apart a little bit. They they didn't play well. And then Tippett moved Jones to Bear 
on on what was a third pair, and they struggled, and then Bear got a concussion. And at that point, uh, and this would have been, I'm going to say, nine or ten games into the year, uh, Tippett reset everything. And he sat all the, the young players, and that would be, uh, I believe, Bouchard, um, Bear, and Jones. And he played Russell, and he played uh, Cuckoo, and, and you know, obviously Larson. And Tyson Berry moved up to the uh, to the top pair with, with Darnell Nurse, and that stuck for the entire year. So when you, when you go through that, I think in the evaluation portion of that, you don't want to have a repeat of, of the beginning of, of the the season where you were maybe in the opinion of the coach and maybe GM too, counting too much on, on the young players. So Jones was, was partnered with Larson in game one, I believe a year ago. So I think Keith was the player they wanted to come in and have uh, him establish as a second pair guy with Larson who they could count on. And, you know, uh, there's been a lot written about Keith since, since the trade. With the puck on his stick, the, the analytics that I've looked at show that he, you know, he can move the puck. He, he's the, the Blackhawks, who were not a good team, they were, they were doing good things, uh, often with Keith uh, on the ice. And, and in possession of the puck. Now, they didn't score as much as you'd think. They were maybe having some bad puck luck or whatever the case may be, but their their shot differential was was pretty solid, and depending upon who they were playing against. And you can sort of see a glimmer of what, what he might be with a veteran like Larson. So <clears throat> that, to me, was the, the idea that they had. Now, with Larson maybe not signing, what what I think they might do uh, and what I'm hoping they do is put Ethan Bear there. It'll be a, an undersized second pair, but they'll be able to move the puck very well. And, and they should be able to retrieve the puck. Bear can skate pretty well if, say, Mike Smith is playing in goal. Puck retrieval isn't as vital because he can do so much to help you. But that's my thought about Keith. I think, I think he'll surprise people because he'll be playing less minutes and he'll be able to have a bigger impact. Okay, yeah, well, so I'd really love to see Duncan Keith do well, I guess, pull uh, Mike Smith, as we've been hearing, like, people hoping that he'll be able to do even at this late part of his career, being able to have an impact. What about, like, on the power play? I guess, like I said, the latest that I've been seeing is that Tyson Barry is going to come back, so I guess that would answer the question. Do you think that's likely the scenario? Is it true that the way things are... I probably should just book this interview, like, in a week or two weeks, and we wouldn't have just known <laughs> the answer. But, like, uh, is that? do you concur from what you've heard that it's going to be, like, Larson as Alba Barry is potentially going to Day? I would say this is my opinion, and <clears throat> it's my opinion alone. I, I don't share it with anybody. I just think when <clears throat> when a season goes as well as it did for the McDavid line and <clears throat> for that group of highly skilled guys, and Tyson Berry was a part of it, there's always going to be an itch, right? There's like, man, I wish we could get that guy back. Everything went so well, and so if if the reason he wasn't going to come back is the Oilers didn't have the money because Larson's style is best suited to Bear and Bouchard. Bouchard may not replace Tyson Berry, but he the role would be Bouchard's uh, that the, the Berry had a year ago. He wouldn't play with Darnell Nurse, but he'd get the power play time and all of those things. If Berry does come back, it sets up two possibilities. One, that Bouchard comes into the National Hockey League and plays a full year without getting a lot of power play time, which feels like a waste, but it could happen. Or 
they might make a move. And, and I, I think it's very dangerous to trade young defensemen. Uh, it, it almost never works out. You almost always pay for it down the line because, you know, you're going to see them for the next decade or 15 years. So with Bear and Bouchard, I think they're both keepers. They're inexpensive. They're value contracts. And what they, if they do sign Barry, and I think there's a real chance they do, my suspicion is you're going to see a shutdown player added on the left side. Uh, and, and maybe it's Chris Russell, but I think he's more suited to a number seven role. I think you're going to see a, a left-handed version of Adam Larson, and he would play on the third pair with Evan Bouchard. Barry would go with Nurse, and Bear would go with Duncan Keith. Hmm, okay. And then I guess, obviously, though, as far as the power play goes, as much as it would be cool to see Evan Bouchard get a shot, I can't imagine that they bump Tyson Barry from that spot after the success that he had. So I'm curious to get your take on what the upside for Bouchard would be then in his, like, I guess this would be his official rookie season. So he was drafted, and just to remind people, 10th overall in 2018. He's been on our radars, like one of the Oilers' top prospects ever since. Uh, this past season, he was loaned to Sodertalj SK, and he had 17 points in 23 games, also played 14 games with the Oilers mostly in February. I think his ice time fluctuated like all over the place during those games. I guess they were really trying to figure out what Bouchard can do. Uh, he ended up producing five points in those 14 games. So are we confident, first of all, that this will finally be Bouchard's first full season as a full-time NHLer? And also, I guess, yeah, I'd be curious to ask, like, what kind of upside in terms of points do you think we can expect from the 21-year-old? Or I guess he'll be 22 in October. Like, what do you think he can do if he's not like getting this power play time because Barry is taking that role? Well, I think it, it won't be his rookie year because he's played too many games now, but oh, it will okay. be his first full year. And and I, I think, you know, I think he will get some power play time, like second unit power play time. And I think 25 points is a reasonable So I, I would have him well over 40 if if he were uh, getting power play time. Now, Tyson Berry, like, he, he delivered a big time this past year. So he's going to get the number one power play work if he's on the team. It, it, that's my belief. And and the the second pair would easily go to Bouchard. the 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 issue would be that you um, and this is weird, but it's true. Uh, you, you need five guys who can penalty kill. So Bouchard, because Barry's not going to penalty kill, Bouchard would have to to be on the penalty kill probably more often than he's on the power play, which is a weird twist of fate, but but Dave Tippett is really a stickler for uh, players being able to play some kind of special team. So Bouchard being cut off of the power play might mean that, that he's blocking shots and, and doing things that ordinarily young skill players don't do. Might might turn him into a better defenseman, but that's, you, you know, if, if from a fantasy point of view, I don't think that helps you. So you're probably uh, fading him a little bit because he's unlikely to get a lot of power play points. Yeah, I wonder if Bouchard is secretly hoping that the Oilers don't sign Tyson Berry just so he can get that shot. Though obviously, he would never say it. Okay, so I'll put you on the spot. Who, if you had to pick, who's going to get more points next year between Bouchard and Duncan Keith? Do you think it's it's close, or is there an obvious answer for you? Oh, I, I think I think Keith will probably get. 16 to 20, and I think Bouchard will get 25. 
Okay, that's, so that's a guess. Uh, we'll edge yeah. him out. <laughs> okay, I'll listen back next summer before part three of this series, <laughs> and we'll see how you did. Uh, and then I guess, yeah, just to finish the series of defensemen, because yeah, there's a lot of interesting storylines on D there, because I need to also ask you about Darnell Nurse, who like joined Barry in putting up a career-high offensive set of numbers this past season. He had uh, 16 goals and 36 points in 56 games. That's a 23-goal, 53-point pace if it had been an 82-game season. Uh, making Darnell Nurse, by the way, one of the most valuable defensemen in fantasy, if you're playing in a league that also values like he almost had three shots per game a couple hits and a couple blocks every game so he was like helping you across the board uh i see his shooting percentage was like crazy high it shot up from 2.9 percent in 2019-20 to 10.4 percent in 2020-21 which obviously facilitated the goal outburst uh do you think there's like any chance that nurse will be able to replicate what he did last season and make it like somewhat sustainable? Or do you think that this was kind of like finding lightning in a bottle and we should expect him to go back to being like the around, you know, five to 10 goal, 40 point-ish defenseman that we'd gotten used to in the previous couple seasons? Well, I think, I think you know, 40 points is a pretty impressive total. Yeah, but sure. I also think there's two things Nurse did. Uh, you know, he's a pretty amazing hockey player because, you know, he came in as a rookie and he was tough and big and could skate like the wind. And, and he was forced into a, a more prominent role because of injury and he survived. And, and for rookies, survival is a big thing. And then as he went through his career, he, he improved slowly, matriculated slowly as a, as a coverage defenseman, uh, but he got better. And then two years ago, he got, he got, he seemed to emerge a little. And then this past year, he did so many things at, at the highest level I've ever seen him. Uh, he passed the puck beautifully like tape to tape on the fly hits the forward the forward doesn't have to like even adjust his stride he i don't think he'd done that a lot in the first years he did it a bunch this past year the other thing he did and and Nugent Hopkins improved too so i'm i'm suspicious about it i think maybe somebody's been working with the orders on it but he he God love Darnell Nurse. I love him as a player, but he did something a lot of defensemen do uh, where he'd brush up the ice. Tom Pody used to do it too. Brush up the ice, shoot the puck, and hit the crest of the goalie. Like, just shoot the puck at the net. The goalie's got everything covered, and and you just drive it as hard as you can, and it's a save. Whistle blows. It's a face-off. This past year, Nurse started picking his corners and hitting them. And and what he did was, I think, I think he stopped trying to blast it. He's strong as a, a you know bull. He's just a monster man. But he started he, he, less torque, more aim. And he was hitting top corners and and uh, you know he 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 just impressed the hell out of me on the skill side of it. And, and for him to do it at this age and at this point in his career is especially impressive. So I I think it's I think he's learned a skill. I don't think it'll go away unless he gets hurt, like a hand injury or a wrist injury. I, I think we might see uh, him duplicate the 40-point year, and, and he might, I don't know if he'll score 16 goals, but he might be a pretty consistent 10-goal, uh, 40-point guy on defense. And if he gets power play time, you know, that's the other thing about Nurse. Most of this stuff is at 5-on-5. Five five. He's incredible that way. One of the league leaders in that category. But, uh, but there's a lot more to Darnell Nurse this past year than there was, say, in years one, two, and three. 
Yeah, he actually had seven power play points this past season, even though like Tyson Berry got so many power play points as well. So I guess that also helped his totals. And yeah, I guess so. from what you're saying, maybe the 10.4 shooting percentage is a little bit high, but maybe he won't fall all the way back down if what you're saying is true and he sort of learned to shoot a little bit uh, more accurately, then that would make sense like that he would, you know, get a higher percentage of his shots going in. Uh, and I guess, okay, I'll, fi- I'll finish up on D quickly just to ask you about Philip Broberg because he's the other like sort of big prospect in the system. Uh, I saw that you wrote an article around the trade deadline, just like giving an update on all the prospects. And you wrote that, like, according to your article, he had some injuries last year. He wasn't able to crack the top pairing in Skeleftia of the SHL last season. I hope I, I pronounced that right. So uh, should we assume that that means it'll be at least another season before we see Broberg come over to North America? Okay, I'm gonna, again, I'm going to tell you, this is just my opinion. Nobody shares it because I've tried it on people and nobody agrees with me. <laughs> I don't know why, and, and I, can't, I can't give you a reason, but Broberg shows far better in North America than he does in Europe. And uh, my theory is, because it, when he plays World Junior Games, he's a dynamic puck carrier. But when he plays in the SHL, he, he's more a defender, and he doesn't move the puck at all. And I think it's coaching. And when he was in the bubble uh, in whatever year that was, uh, 2020 summer, I guess, he they were really impressed with him. He was doing all kinds of things. I think he has that ability. I think it will come out. Uh, last year he had some injury issues and they backed him off quite a bit and they knew he was coming to, uh, the, the orders the following year. So they were, they were kind of MacGyvering what they were going to do with their team in, in, in the following season as well. So I, I think he could surprise. He can play either side. He's very mobile. And when they had him here, uh, both at the World Juniors, uh, uh, I'm sorry, at the Gretzky, uh, the Halinka Gretzky tournament here in Edmonton and in the bubble, there was a real buzz in this town about him. And I think that buzz will, will happen again. I'm not saying he's going to start the year, but I think he would be uh, certainly a recall player in the coming season. Okay, cool. So yeah, maybe like midway through, we get Broberg and Dylan Holloway to rejuvenate a team, depending on how they're doing. Uh, okay, so I obviously need to finish in nets. You mentioned that you think that Mike Smith might come back, and he's someone who just had this like out of nowhere season, right? One of the best seasons of his career, uh, 21 wins and 923 save percentage in the 32 games that he appeared in. This was after he looked like completely ordinary at best in 2019-20 with a 902 save percentage. And in fact, like Smith and Miko Koskinen pretty much swapped fortunes, right? Because Koskinen looked decent in 2019-20 with a 917 save percentage, but completely fell off this past year, not even able to crack a 900 save percentage in the 26 games that he played. So now going into next season, Koskinen has one year left on that 4.5 million dollar contract and mike smith is a ufa who's i assume looking for a bit of a raise from the 1.5 million he made last year so what's your current take on what ken holland has planned for the oilers in nets next season is it going to be smith and koskinen as the tandem again or maybe is there going to be something a little bit more inspired i i think i think he'd like to sign smith but smith had such a good year he's going to get interest from everybody so uh I, I ideally, I think you'd see in in his own mind he probably wants to sign uh, Smith and Linus Olmark out of Buffalo or something like oh, that. Oh, nice! Uh, and then what? Then buy out Miko Koskinen? Well, or you know, I still think they can trade him. I now there'd have to be some money retained, but I still think Koskinen has you know 
he doesn't have a great glove, but he blocks out the sun. And and NHL teams like that. And and size is really sexy in the NHL for goalies. I think I think he could find a home. I think they could find a place for him somewhere in the NHL. And and then you sign Olmark and Smith. I think that would be ideal. Uh, I'm not sure it'll happen that way. And I don't think I don't think Ken Holland and he said this. I don't think he has any problem you know signing Smith and running Smith Koskinen. The guy that I'd pay attention to uh for later in the year or or maybe next year is a Russian goalie named Ilya Konovalov. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, has played very well in the KHL for a few years now and they have signed him. Uh, and I I believe that that he um I think I think he'll beat Stuart Skinner out for the job in Bakersfield, and I think you know he's not a young player; he's not like twenty or anything. So I think Konovalov's the guy to watch, and and I think they will try to sign Olmark and Smith. But the the thing to keep in mind on all free agents is there's eighty million new dollars flooding the system as we speak, and so you know Adam Larson might have gone from a four by four player to a five by five and a half player overnight. And, and so the orders are not going to be able to compete with all of that. And that's why I mentioned in Konovalov and Broberg and Holloway and, and frankly, Bouchard and bear, because they need those guys who are making 2 million or less, but can play. And so you might see some kind of a, a combination of high end free agents and very inexpensive prospects playing in important roles on the owners next year yeah i guess that's the way to have a successful team is to have some players on their entry-level contracts or cheap contracts that are able to contribute and yeah you did mention konovalov in our interview last year saying he was someone to watch so yeah maybe it could work out if they could get mike smith for like a year along with linus allmark and then you know replace smith with konovalov like in the following season that could be good but hey maybe we'll see him next year as well so it'll be really fun like man you're bringing up all these uh free agent signings that i'd love to see the oilers make from taylor hall to uh you know linus allmark uh you know obviously retaining Tyson Barry, so it'll be fun to see what they do. Uh, I almost wish that I could uh, get you back for an interview in a little bit, but in the meantime, this has been just a blast. I've really enjoyed it. I guess to finish off our chat, I'll ask you a question that I've been asking all the beat writers as we've been going through this series. Um, if you could pick one Oiler that you expect to be the biggest positive surprise for next season, so someone that maybe people don't have as high on their radars as they should, and then on the flip side, a player who you think might end up being the biggest disappointment, someone that people are expecting more from than they'll end up getting from that player uh, who would your picks be uh, a player that's really under the radar and i think for good reason because he he uh he played in in 10 games at the end of the year and he didn't move the needle much offensively but ryan mcleod is a speed demon uh who i think makes the team as a fourth line center and and i think he'll move up the depth chart he is he he has uh he improved so much from his draft uh year plus one to his first year in the AHL, to to where he was when he got recalled, I, I think he's a player that's going to surprise. I'm not going to. He's not going to score 15 goals, but he's going to surprise. Going to play a lot of the penalty kill, uh, and and he has like incredible speed, and and that's going to get him a lot of chances with the Oilers this coming year. As far as disappointments are concerned, that's a tough one. I I will say this that that um, when you look at the Oilers roster. And and you're looking at at players who, uh, 
you know, performed at a pretty good level a year ago and, and might not reach that level this year. The, the one that I would point to is, is uh, Mike Smith only because of his age. Now, he's not on the roster, so that's, you know, that's kind of cheating a little bit on my it part. <laughs> but, 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 you know, I think whoever signs Smith, whoever, if it's the Oilers or whomever, just be, and, and it, it's just the nature of the beast. He's, he's going to be 40 soon. Tough position to play. And he, like, he cheated everything last year. Give him full credit. He was amazing, but that's going to be harder to do this year because he's a year older. So that would be my choice. Okay, I think that makes sense. Probably whoever signs Mike Smith. I mean, I'll be interested to see what kind of contract he gets, right? Because you would think that all the GMs in the league realize that this past season that he just had is probably like the peak of what you're going to see as, like you say, he enters his 40s. But yeah, I definitely think that is an astute pick. Last year, by the way, you picked Zach Cassian, and you were totally right. He wasn't able to repeat that amazing pace from 2019-20, so I wouldn't be surprised if you get this right again. Uh, So yeah, Alan, thanks so much again for joining. Uh, Before I let you go, of course, we should let all the listeners know how they can follow all of your great content uh, on The Athletic, on Twitter. Do you want to let people know how they can keep up with everything you're doing? Sure. Uh, at Low Tide on Twitter, uh, on the TSN 1260 radio, 10 to noon weekdays uh, at Mountain uh, Time, and uh, write for The Athletic, and, and uh, spend far too much time on Twitter. Um, <laughs> and I also have a blog called Low Tide. Awesome. Yeah, and we'll link to all of that in our show notes. Definitely, I recommend everyone uh, subscribe to The Athletic and, and read all of uh, Low Tide's articles if you want to keep up to date on the Oilers. There's new articles coming out all the time. Uh, so yeah, thanks so much again for coming on Keeping Carlson. Uh, good luck to the Oilers next year. I really hope that they get past the first round. I want to see what McDavid could do on a long playoff run. Yeah, it'll be fun to watch. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thank you so much again to Alan Mitchell for joining me to talk about the Edmonton Oilers. That was such an interesting discussion. Yeah, it'll be fun to see what they do in free agency. It'll also be so interesting to see throughout the season which of these young players potentially comes up from the AHL and makes an impact on our fantasy teams halfway through the season. It's always important to keep in mind the players that you're going to want to rush to add to your fantasy teams as soon as that call-up happens. It looks like we've got a few exciting names. Uh, Dylan Holloway, potentially Broberg, Konovalov. Make sure you know these names. Uh, Okay, so yeah. Really fun. Thanks again to Alan Mitchell. And thank you again for listening to Keeping Carlson. We really appreciate our listeners, especially in the summer, but of course all the time. I'd love to hear from you. If I haven't yet, let us know that you're uh, listening to our humble show. You can tweet at us at Keeping Carlson to say hello. We'll say hello back. We'll become great friends. Uh, also, if you're interested in becoming a patron of Keeping Carlson, you can check out KeepingCarlson.com slash patron for all the information about joining our Discord community and seeing all the other perks we offer to our patrons. But okay, with that, how about I cue the outro music then i'll read you the credits and we could all go home so this episode of the keeping carlson fantasy hockey podcast was presented by dauber hockey and supported by our patrons outro music is by pat roach and logo art came from brandonweave.com this episode was researched with help from let me see here well obviously frozen tools i read a bunch of articles on the athletic uh, elite prospects to see what Broberg and Bouchard have been up to. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Of course, mainly uh, the research came from Alan Mitchell, aka Low Tide, and all of his experience covering the Edmonton Oilers. So thanks again to him. I think I said it like three times, but I do. I really appreciate it. I had such a fun time talking to him. Uh, okay, but I guess that's it. So we'll be back at you with another interview actually very soon, maybe in just a couple of days. So until then, sit tight and remember that fantasy hockey is for everyone.